Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 17th, 2018, and my guest is Professor Kevin McKenna, Professor of Russian Language, Literature, and Culture at the University of Vermont. Kevin, welcome to EconTalk. Yes, thank you. This is the first of a set of episodes on Alexander Solzhenitsyn's masterwork, In the First Circle. If you're interested, you can read along with the project. Just make sure you read In the First Circle, the first uncensored edition. You'll find it on Amazon listed that way. Uh, it's it's a revision, an uncensored version of a book he wrote long before called The First Circle. Don't get The First Circle. Get In The First Circle. Uh, this episode, and of course, we'll, we'll link to the book uh, if you want to buy it directly from our page. This episode is to introduce the author, Solzhenitsyn, and the historical, literary, and political context of the book. In theory, there aren't going to be any spoilers. Uh, so if you haven't started reading, you should be okay. I also want to add that while I'm confident there will be at least uh, some additional episodes on the book, I don't know how many and whether there will be bonus episodes or regular Monday ones, but we'll try to keep you posted here. And you can follow me on Twitter at EconTalker, EconTalk with an E-R at the end, EconTalker, for updates. So, Kevin, let's start with uh, the man himself, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This is the 100th anniversary of his birth year. Uh, tell us about his life. Oh, he had a very long and extremely complex and interesting life. He's born um, in December of 1918. Somewhat interestingly, his um, father was involved in first world uh, in the First World War and did not live long enough to see uh, his son being born. That is Alexander Isayevich Solzhenitsyn. Um, his father came home from the war and unfortunately died within a few weeks uh, in a hunting accident. At any rate, Solzhenitsyn, uh, the novelist, our Solzhenitsyn, is born in the Caucasus Mountains in, in a town called Kislovodsk. Um, he's got a pretty rough kind of childhood growing up. His mother, uh, by necessity, has to work several kinds of jobs. Often she's really away from where her son is living. And to a certain degree, um, Solzhenitsyn's aunt, or one of his aunts, um, uh, raises him to, to a considerable degree. Um, he's going to, uh, by the early 1940s, he's going to enlist or be called, drafted into the army. He serves as a um, artillery office officer during World War II, or what the Soviets call, and the Russians today, refer to as the Great Patriotic War. So from time to time, if I say Great Patriotic War, I always mean World War II. Um, he's uh, received has, has decorations. He been, has he been to college? Uh, yes, he w went to college, uh, finishing up in about 1940. He, in fact, even gets married uh, at the end of college, right before he goes into military service. Uh, he graduates from 
college with degrees in mathematics and physics, which is going to uh, play into later life, that is, places where he lives and jobs that he has, as well as into the um, plots of a number of his novels and short stories. Uh, while serving during World War II, towards the very end of the war, in fact, in February of 1945, Solzhenitsyn is arrested. Um, they've just crossed into, that is, his military unit has just crossed into Prussia. And in effect, he's arrested for uh, criticizing Stalin in a series of letters that he was corresponding in with a friend back home or who was actually in the army as well, serving elsewhere. Um, Solzhenitsyn is interrogated in the famous Lubyanka prison, um, and he's sentenced to a term of eight years, and he's sent to a labor camp. Um, his first, his initial labor camp, in fact, is the setting for the novel that we're reading in the first circle. Um, this is a labor camp, uh, Mavrino, which is really not all that much the kind of labor that we typically associate with Solzhenitsyn's um, life and terms in, in uh, the Gulag. It's a camp, a special camp, for uh, mathematicians, physicians, basically... Physicists, um, I think you meant. Physicists, oh, yes, I'm sorry, did I say physicians? Yeah. Physicists, indeed. Um, it's, it's a camp which has been assigned a, a variety of different research um, tasks. Uh, essentially, a camp for extremely bright and gifted uh, Russians who happen to be now in prison. And he serves there, essentially, that is, in this Mavrino um, Research Institute between the years of 1946 and 1949. I want to go back to his arrest, though, for a minute. Sure. Just to make it clear, because it, it it's sometimes hard to believe mm -hmm. for, for uh, non-Russian folks. Uh, he was arrested by his own government. He said he was going into Prussia. They, right. they were – advancing into the right. attack on and defeat of ultimate defeat of Germany. Mm -hmm. And he's arrested for treasonous remarks. If, if I remember correctly, he said in this letter that Stalin wasn't doing a very good job <laughs> prosecuting yeah. the war, just like mm -hmm. a couple sentences. But of course, That's all right. the mail is censored, which is not right. uncommon in, in wartime, but censored right. is not the right word. It's read yes. and censored. <laughs> and then, but the other part I want to just mention, because he's a little bit different, but he writes about this extensively in the Gulag, is that thousands of Russian soldiers were arrested after the war and thrown into prison camps if they had been in German prisoner oh, yes. of war camps. Yes. So it's just important to think about you know, the, the camps we're going to be talking about, who's in them. Some of them are mm -hmm. people who wrote an innocuous – somewhat innocuous after you read it. It's pretty innocuous criticism. Of, uh, of of Stalin, others are there under suspicion of treason because sure. if they were in a German labor uh, prisoner of war camp, they may have collaborated with the Germans. They may have mm -hmm. um, who knows what. And so, it, an extraordinary thing. It just literally to me, literally, it's it's just, it's just unbelievable that that after suffering through a German prisoner of war camp, you were greeted by your nation's 
mm-hmm. police as a potential uh, traitor and were thrown into a prison. Uh, and an eight-year sentence was often – could be a death sentence. It's, you know, an American or modern prisons, eight years, okay, it's not fun. But these, these were – a lot of people died during the, yeah. their eight-year or ten-year or five-year sentences. Well, as we read in the early chapters of the novel in, in the first circle – um, these eight and ten year prison sentences and terms um, upon completion very, very often and quite in fact quite typically were converted into fifteen and twenty and twenty five year terms so in other words, uh, theoretically, one could i should say both theoretically and practically or in practice, one could serve his uh, ten year uh, sentence and then have another sentence added on to this. Uh, the prisoners who went in, let's say, during the 1930s, particularly the early 1930s, we meet several of them in the novel itself, uh, who are now, let's say, in their 23rd, 24, 25th uh, year of sentence. This did not apply to Solzhenitsyn himself, nor to a number of his characters that he bases his novels on. But you, you hit the uh, nail on the head um, at the end of World War II, now this would be following Solzhenitsyn's own arrest and interrogation and prison sentence, but in, in history, in historical fact, um, Soviet soldiers who had indeed been taken prisoner upon returning home to their to the Soviet Union, they would either be arrested and immediately tried and sent to a gulag camp, or many of them, in fact, were executed. Um, And this is why so many prisoners, Soviet prisoners of war, who were being released after the war from the German camps and so on, many of them end up coming to Canada, some come to the extreme northwestern part of the United States, rather than going home because they, by that time, it was quite clear that they would either be arrested and sentenced to camp or they would be executed. Now, I want to just mention two things that I think are, again, to give a little more of the flavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a joke. It's it's a very dark joke, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure I read it in the Gulag Archipelago. The Gulag is, by the way, the you should define what that is for listeners who don't know. Yes, gulag uh, is, well, the term gulag means uh, means the main um, administration of camps, camps. Lenin, as early as the 1920s, in fact, the early 1920s, followed by Stalin, essentially uh, established what we would call perhaps concentration camps, uh, quite different than, than the concentration camps that we associate um, for Jews in, in Germany and Poland. They weren't explicitly it, extermination camps. They were, work, right. they were labor camps, although they many people camps. died. Oh, from yes, the labor. many people died. Typically, many people died en route to the camps. The camps uh, often were based in the Arctic Circle or in Siberia or uh, in Soviet Central Asia. But at any rate, um, it's hard to say the, the Soviets didn't keep records, and if they did keep them, they certainly didn't release them. But it's estimated that several million um, Soviet citizens, both men and women, 
were sentenced to these gulag camps between the early to mid-1920s all the way through the extreme early 1950s. And Solzhenitsyn's Uh, history of this period of the camps, mm -hmm. he called the gulag archipelago because it was a – he saw it as a chain of islands that that were were linked together. Across the entire country. But I was going to tell a a dark joke, a a macabre Mm -hmm. joke from that era, which was – uh, and I'm going to probably get it, I'm not get it verbatim right, but the, just as straightforward where uh, someone says um, to another uh, prisoner, the prisoners are called Zex, Z-E-K-Z-E-K-S. Tell us, by the way, what that means or where that phrase comes from, and then Is I'll continue my joke. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, Zek essentially means uh, a person who has been uh, convicted of a crime and sentenced to his or her prison camp experience. It's just essentially a collective noun referring to prisoners in the gulag system. It Was there a longer version? I cut you off there. Is there a longer? Zaklichunli. Uh, I'm afraid I only remember uh, the, the, the essence of it is um, basically a prison in a, in a camp. A gulag camp system. And there's different kinds. There's political prisoners, of which Solzhenitsyn oh, yes. is one. There's actually mm-hmm. – there's thieves and felons as well. But That's right. Uh, but the joke is one Zach says to the other, uh, uh, what's your sentence? And he says, uh, he says, 10 years. He said, what did you do? He said, nothing. He said, no, that can't be. For nothing, you only get eight years. Yeah. That's and right. that's the, the, the capriciousness of it. Writing oh, yeah. a letter with a sentence in it that's disrespectful of Stalin's uh, mm-hmm. skill set. Uh, I know in the Gulag, Solzhenitsyn tells a story again. I, you never know whether these are jokes, true, or there's. I think they're true, but they're they're unbearably sad. Uh, somebody mm-hmm. wraps, somebody takes a newspaper and wraps a fish in it, but he wraps the fish. The part that comes in contact with the fish has a picture of Stalin from the newspaper in it. So a neighbor informs on him, and he's oh, arrested. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, it's it's hard. These to, are factual. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that the tragedy involved here. Um, it's it's just horrifying. So he comes out of the camps. Excuse me. Comes he he graduates from college. He's married. He goes to the war. He's arrested for a, a remark in a letter, mm-hmm. and is in the the special kind of camp. Uh, called a Sharashka mm-hmm. for three years, 19, you said 40? 1946 to 49. Okay. Doing scientific work on behalf of the regime, but as you read from the book, it's it's, it's not like being in a labor camp, but it's not nothing like being in a normal institute either. Yes, the, <laughs> the first circle, uh, the title in the first circle, obviously comes from Dante's um, comedy, the first uh, uh, the Divine Comedy. And as we read in one of the very early chapters, I think as early as chapter three of the novel, um, there's a discussion once again between among some of the Zeks who are talking about what is the meaning of uh, Asharashka. And they say, well, it comes, of course, from the notion of Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. And uh, the first circle of hell in, in the Divine Comedy was the easiest, the lightest, and it was essentially uh, a circle of hell that Dante created for the intellects, 
um, the philosophers, he didn't feel, Dante that is, didn't feel that you could really um, imprison these kind of pre-Christian philosophers in the more ugly circles of hell. And following that example, um, the first circle in um, Sorzhenitsyn's novel deals with essentially the intellects, the Soviet intellects, um, who are being spared, let's say, the lower circles of hell. Now, as we're going to read, and I don't want to give anything away in the novel, um, a number of these prisoners, or zeks, in the Sharashka um, ultimately have come to the Sharashka from uh, lower 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth circles of hell, gulag camps, uh, and others are going to leave the Sharashka, the first circle of hell, and are going to embark uh, on a journey to the lower circles of hell. And there is, a, you know, the I think the word I would use is I talk about that fish newspaper story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, there's a there's a Kafka esque uh, mm-hmm. element of surreal um, existence. It, you know, those of you who haven't read anything about the Gulag or about Solzhenitsyn, when you read the book, you'll you'll get the flavor of that. So he's there for three years, and he then is he leaves there and goes where in 1949? Well, he, he didn't leave voluntarily, yeah. and this has yeah. to do. Uh, this has to do with the novel once again, but I, I can't relate that experience at this point. But at any rate, um, Solzhenitsyn uh, indeed leaves the Sharashka, uh, in fact, in a very interesting ethical point of view or from an ethical perspective. He decides, Solzhenitsyn decides that um, the Sharashka, the first circle of hell, is a bit too difficult for him in certain respects, and you'd have to read the novel in order to be able to understand the ethical, philosophical dimensions of Solzhenitsyn's decision. But he elects himself, as is going to be true of some of the characters in the novel, he decides that he's going to subject himself to the lower circles of hell, um, and this deals with perhaps one of the most important ethical, philosophical questions or premises of the novel, uh, by what values, by what uh, ethical systems do we human beings live? This is a question that is raised throughout Russian literature of the 19th and 20th centuries, particularly by Leo Tolstoy um, at the end of the 19th century, a Russian writer who, along with Dostoevsky, very much influenced um, Solzhenitsyn the man as well as Solzhenitsyn the writer. So at any rate, uh, Solzhenitsyn in 1950 goes to a what we would call now a, a more of a concentration camp, a very ugly kind of camp. For those of your readers who have already read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, uh, this is the kind of ugly um, experience brutal. that Solzhenitsyn, brutal experience that Solzhenitsyn uh, experiences himself. Uh, this takes place in Kazakhstan between the years of 1950 and 1953. And it's during this period 
um, that in order to spare his wife uh, some of the very ugly atrocities that are being committed against spouses, uh, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers of those who have been arrested and sent to a gulag camp. Solzhenitsyn spares his wife of that difficulty by uh, divorcing her. And lastly, it's in this period when he's in a gulag camp in Kazakhstan that uh, he has an early operation for cancer uh, there in the camp itself. And this is going to figure into another one of Solzhenitsyn's later novels called uh, Cancer Ward. Um, by 1953, 1954, Solzhenitsyn completes his eight-year sentence. Um, we're getting now, of course, to the period of Stalin's death, uh, which gradually kicks in uh, release for hundreds of thousands, if not uh, early millions, of Zeks or concentration camp gulag camp um, prisoners uh, to be released from prison. And gradually they're going to, well, initially they have to stay out in Siberia, but they're no longer in prison. And then gradually, let's say by 1957, Solzhenitsyn, like many others, were rehabilitated and permitted to return to Russia from um, Central Asia. Living in Kazakhstan, especially uh, in Central Asia during the 40s and 50s, uh, brutal um, cold weather, um, not at all any kind of humane or even human treatment of the prisoners. But at any rate, um, from 1953 to 54, Solzhenitsyn is finally being um, uh, released from the Gulag camp, but he remains in what was then called perpetual exile. Um, and it's in this year, roughly a year after his treatment for cancer, his first treatment for cancer, that the cancer returns and Solzhenitsyn, um, now out of the camp, but in uh, perpetual exile, goes to the capital of Kazakhstan, Tashkent, and he's going to be treated much more successfully for the cancer that he um, suffered in the prison camps. And this, as I've mentioned already, is going to be the, the setting for his novel, The Cancer Ward. By 1957, um, Solzhenitsyn, like thousands and thousands of other Soviet zeks, uh, has not only been released from the camps, uh, he's been released from perpetual exile. He returns to Russia. Uh, he moves initially to Rizan, uh, where he teaches math, mathematics, in uh, uh, what we would probably understand as a middle and high school um, uh, type of educational experience for, for Russian uh, youths. Before going on, I think put a little bit of historical context here and I, I just want to mention one other thing before I do the historical context which mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. I haven't said why we're doing a book club on this book which is kind of embarrassing but uh, that I haven't mentioned it but I just want to say to listeners the reason we're doing this book club is that uh, for reasons not worth going into I, I went back to this book I had read the original version called The First Circle back 40 years ago or so and I decided to go back and read them again, read it again, and in this new version. And I was so 
blown away by the book. I was so moved by the book. It is an extraordinary novel. It's it's thought provoking. It's heartbreaking. It's funny. So I'm just that's just a little ad. It's it's also very long. It's 740 pages. It's also very hard to read. And at the end of this conversation, I'll give some suggestions on how to make that a little bit easier for a newcomer like myself, uh, rather than a professor of Russian literature. But uh, for like like Kevin is, but uh, the historical context is that there's this period, and I'd like you to talk about it, Kevin. There's this period after the death of Stalin, where the Soviet Union goes through what is best described, I guess, as some kind of thaw. Mm-hmm. So the the prison system, this liberation of prisoners, is just it's an incredible event. Now, at first they're liberated into exile, and then they're mm-hmm. eventually allowed to sort of come back into normal life, but Right. They've, they're not really prepared for normal life, and it's not just a small group. It's it's hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Mm-hmm. And so their society is grappling with this transition. Stalin's been in power for roughly 30 years, has mm-hmm. turned the entire country into essentially a police state of informants and right. done all kinds of other things we're not going to talk about, collectivized farming and created a famine in, in, in Ukraine, which kills millions of people and mm-hmm. this enormous prison system. but. Talk for a little bit about what's going on outside the camps, what's going on in Soviet society at large in this period, say, 1954 to into the 60s, which is going to allow Solzhenitsyn mm-hmm. to actually publish publish some of his books. Sure. Well, the perhaps the, mo- the most important aspect of this of this period, let's say, between Stalin's death and the early 1960s, initially um, – the Russians were Russian people were totally caught off guard by the death of Stalin. He had ruled them for so long, and they had become so um, accustomed to the strictures of, of living life in the Soviet Union that they now found themselves without a leader, a vorst, as it is called in Russian. And uh, perhaps to help us imagine this. Russian and Soviet, and now, by the way, post-Soviet Russian history, has never done a very good job of grooming successors to political leaders. Um, We can look, for example, today at Putin. He is very, very careful, uh, as has been the history of the 20th century, in not grooming someone to replace him. We saw, of course... Um, about six years ago, how it was that he more or less anointed Medvedev, his then prime minister, uh, to be elected as president so that he, Putin, could claim that uh, he was very democratic and he did not serve more than two terms in office. Uh, But as we know, of course, in, in 2016, Putin then comes back uh, legally, and he's now the president, and he he uh, lengthens the term of the presidency from four to six years. Well, my point is that because no one is being groomed politically to succeed Stalin, um, as was true, by the way, of to succeed Lenin, um, the Russian people find themselves lost. There's a triumvirate of Russian leaders, uh, Stalin being one of these three members of the triumvirate, who by 1956 has pretty much claimed um, 
the leadership of the of this triumvirate, and he, excuse me, did I say Stalin? Khrushchev, um, Nikita Khrushchev, one of Stalin's um, generals and uh, members of his hierarchy, uh, Khrushchev ascends to power um, certainly in 54, 55, 56, and he decides to move on in a direction of what is called de-Stalinization of Russia or of the Soviet Union. And this period of roughly 1955-56 to the early, early 1960s is a period in which we begin to see uh, relaxation of some of the extreme aspects of living life under the, in the Stalin era. Uh, but for our purposes, we even see a relaxation in some of the uh, literary codes and values under which Soviet writers had to write. What I'm referring to is something called socialist realism. And unlike the the strictures of so, socialist realism, uh, wherein a writer or an architect or a poet or a musician, etc., etc., had to um, subscribe and to ascribe to three criteria, basically narodnost, uh, which means whatever was going to be created for our purposes, talking about literature, whatever was going to be written had to deal with the values of the people. Uh, they didn't really, writers were not at all encouraged, in fact, they were prevented from dealing with the lives of individuals. Individual was kind of a four-letter word uh, in, in the Soviet period. In addition to this value of narodnost, we have... Um, an expectation of idienists, or what would be called ideological um, purity. That is, any writer, any musician, any, any conductor, architect, etc., etc., essentially had to create um, with or in tune with the ideological premises and values of uh, Marxism-Leninism. Again, once again, one could not basically use his or her individual genius or individual interests to write or to create. And then the third one, not to go too far into depth here, of course, was partinist. Uh, any kind of literary or other kind, other form of artistic creation had to deal uh, essentially uh, in accordance with the values of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And then the point is, here in the West, when we think of literary creation or music or art or architecture and so on, uh, we ascribe, of course, different kind of values. Uh, we're much more prone to thinking of the values of the individual, for example, or we shun, uh, at least, uh, any kind of political or governmental control of creation, literary or, or music creation, etc., etc. So, in other words, um, this period of the thaw, roughly between 56 and 62, um, we're having a gradual relaxation uh, with respect to literary values. And it's in this period that Solzhenitsyn, um, by 1961, is going to be able to submit 
uh, a novella that he has written uh, called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, uh, he never would have considered submitting this prior to the thaw because not only would he be laughed out of town, he'd be arrested and, and sent back to some kind of, of prison camp. Uh, or, as often happened, he would be sent, obviously, to a psychological ward because anyone who would write something questioning the values of the Soviet Union had to be an insane person. I, I can't help but think of um, William Faulkner's Nobel mm-hmm. Prize address where he describes the goal of art as yes. to, to describe, quote, the human heart in conflict with itself. That, uh-huh. that is a non-socialist realism kind of topic. It's not as threatening as, say, criticizing the regime. Right. But, you're, but what you're telling us is that that level of individual struggle, torment, ethical mm-hmm. issues, love, despair, etc., that was not what Soviet artists were, were supposed to, to deal with. Absolutely um, not. So he writes this book, and it must it must have been scary, even though there was a thought, you know, the thaw. You never know if it's going to last. It was a tremendous act of courage to to put this book forward. I'm sure it wasn't straightforward, mm-hmm. but but it's important to emphasize it. It had to pass muster. It had to pass approval. Oh, yes. It had to be. It wasn't like he could call a publishing house and go, eh, "I don't know if we should publish this." The regime might not <laughs> like it. There was an official way that things got published through the government. Absolutely. Um, in, in order to be able, well, you or I or any person on the street where he or she, let's say, talented enough in whatever they wanted to tackle for a literary submission to a publishing house, anyone can sub- write and submit uh, in the West, of course, uh, their literary creation. In Russia, in order to be able to submit something you had written, whether it be a poem, a play, or a novel, you had to belong to the USSR Writers' Union. And while indeed during the thaw there was some amount of relaxation, the USSR Writers' Union continued to exist. And to become a member of the USSR Writers' Union, you absolutely had to subscribe, both in theory as well as in practice, to those three values of partiness, ideological purity, and um, peopleness or literature for the people. And so Solzhenitsyn has to submit um, his One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich to a literary journal, Novimir, The New World, that uh, he feels he has the best chance to get it published. And it's also, at the time, it was the leading um, literary uh, periodical in, in the Soviet Union. And the editor, a person by the name of Tvardovsky, recognizes immediately in reading um, Solzhenitsyn's manuscript that this is a, a, a work of genius, extremely well written, and it has all kinds of um, qualities to it that Russian readers have not seen in a very, very long period. But Tvardovsky, as the editor-in-chief of this journal, understands that no way in hell, of course, is this work going to be published. It's way too dangerous. And what Tvardovsky does, he submits uh, the manuscript from Solzhenitsyn to the one and only person who could say yay or nay uh, to this outside of the literary world, and that, of course, was Nikita Khrushchev. Khrushchev 
reads the manuscript and uh, he approves of it. Even the somewhat dim Khrushchev recognizes the literary value, but he also recognizes first and foremost that this is going to be a major contribution to his Khrushchev's de-Stalinization of the Soviet Union. Sure. In other words, he's Serves going to his give, purposes. That's right. Serves his purposes indeed. And so this would be, again, for uh, your American readers, this would be the equivalent of submitting a, a novel or short story, a play, whatever, to Barack Obama or to Donald Trump to say, can I publish this in the state of Vermont or the state of Utah or California, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and it's, it, it's, it's like somebody to Donald Trump a novel that criticizes Obama, so you figure he got a shot. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that's, uh, I see that. that's a very good point. And so indeed, um, uh, Twardowski, his journal, is given the permission to, to publish one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. It goes through numerous reprints. And while uh, – I'm leaving a lot of the story out, of course – while the USSR Writers' Union, many, many members of it were opposed to the publication of this novella of Solzhenitsyn's, um, they recognized that if Khrushchev has provided his imprimatur, um, they'd better follow suit. Yeah. And so the, the novella is an extreme um, popular success. It has mixed and varied critical success, essentially owing to the very backwardness of the members of the USSR Soviet Writers Union, um, and well, let me well, let me ask a let me ask a question. At this point, so we're in nineteen sixty one, um, and I'm a let's say a thirty year old in the Soviet Union. I was born in nineteen thirty, so I've never lived under anything other than communism and, and the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Can I read Tolstoy? Can I get a copy of Dostoevsky to read, or am I only reading social socialist, socialist realist realist, sure. realist products that um, were published under under communism? What the Soviets referred to as the Russian classics, Pushkin, Gogol, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, and so on and so on, the great writers of the 19th century, uh, the Soviets actually, for the most part, encouraged the reading of Russia's literary greats, but with many, many exceptions. Uh, A number of the works of Dostoevsky, for example, his notes from the underground, (laughs) were never printed in the Soviet period and were forbidden from being written. In other words, the, the, the Soviet presentation, let's say, of Dostoevsky's works was to say, this is what life is like in the West, under capitalism, um, saying that the, some of the values, the crime, the corruption, and so on, uh, the Soviets are warning um, their readers in the 20th century that um, uh, the, the kind of life and characters, criminals, and so on, the Raskolnikovs, that um, Dostoevsky is creating uh, are very dangerous. They don't really see these characters or these plots the way that Dostoevsky intended or the way that um, 
readers in the 19th century understood these works or, of course, any readers in the West understood those works. But I, I mention it because there must have been an incredible sensation on the street in, in the Soviet Union that there was a book – forget the fact that it was written about – uh, writing about the camps, which they all had mm-hmm. some knowledge of indirectly because they had a cousin or a brother or husband exactly. or typically a man uh, in prison there. Uh, but but also because it's like a new novel. I mean, they've been reading oh, yes. all this junk, stuff that, yeah. that they were supposed to read that was force-fed to them. And yeah. now here comes a novel about an individual's suffering. It must have just electrified them. It absolutely did. Um, they had not read anything as honest and as exciting, and uh, when I use these two adjectives, uh, I'm not really trying to to address one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich in the way that many of us in the West received and perceived uh, the novella. We essentially, let's say, in the 60s and the 70s and even into the early 80s, we thought that this was a literary masterpiece because it revealed the sins and the excesses of Stalin and of his gulag camp system. And While Stalin had been somewhat romanticized by the intellectual class of, of the oh, West yes. for forever. Uh, so mm-hmm. this was a blow to that romantic movement. But, but as you say, most of us do something about it. And That's right. It, but what, what we – certainly in the West, what we often failed to see is the actual literary genius, yeah. the artistic measures that Solzhenitsyn is bringing to this um, novella, uh, artistic uh, mastery which Russian readers have not seen hitherto, let's say almost um, – Oh, let's say since maybe the nineteenth, the teens of the twentieth century. So the book comes out; it's a huge success, and um, but the the thaw, the destalinization thaw of Khrushchev from uh, late fifties to early sixties changes again, mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm looking at the opening. The author's note in the first circle, it says, written 1955 to 1958, so that's during the thaw, Mm -hmm. distorted 1964, Mm -hmm. restored 1968. So the distorted is is that he self-censored this book because he was afraid it wouldn't get published. So he changed the plot. He cut out nine chapters. What's happening – and we'll talk about that in future episode – but what's happening on the ground that makes that necessary in the Soviet Union? What's happening on the ground? Oh, for Solzhenitsyn to have to do that? Um, the period of the thaw, let's say the happier days of the thaw, closed rather dramatically and quickly with the overthrow of Khrushchev and the ascension of Brezhnev. Yeah. Um, for a variety of reasons, um, a, a number of Khrushchev's um, Attempts, well, let's say the Cuban Missile Crisis, I won't uh, go on too far in this direction, but they were such miserable failures that Khrushchev is driven out of office. And while we don't, let's say, for the rest of the 60s and the 70s, we by no means enter into a period of Stalin once again, we have a period where uh, the, the writings of Solzhenitsyn, like in the First Circle or Cancer Ward or the Gulag or August 1914 are just not going to be tolerated because 
in in the minds of the USSR Writers Union, in the mind of Brezhnev and the Politburo, uh, the ruling class of the Soviet Union, uh, these works should not be in encouraged or allowed to be published. So Solzhenitsyn succeeds only in publishing three uh, successive short stories after Ivan Denisovich. Um, by 1968, he is expelled from the USSR Writers' Union, which in effect means he can never ever publish another work of fiction uh, in the Soviet Union. So let's, as I mentioned. So let's stop there mm-hmm. for a moment. Uh, we just recently did an episode uh, with Charlene Nemeth on um, troublemakers and dissenters. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Solzhenitsyn is celebrated around the world for his book, mm-hmm. One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. But he's out of power in, in the literary sense. He's got mm-hmm. no venue. He's got no platform. And he's persona non grata. He's, he's a very, very lonely man. and. Mm-hmm. As far as he knows, he'll never publish again. So the story at this point is about as dark as it gets. Mm-hmm. And given that we know of his subsequent literary output, uh, at this point, he's only published a novella and three short stories. That's right. And has zero prospect on the surface of ever publishing again. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. he's written the book we're talking about in the first circle, just hasn't published it. He mm-hmm. has, uh, although he's going to publish a version of it in that interim period, but not the real thing. He's mm-hmm. writing or has written a multi-volume history of the camps called right. the Gulag Archipelago, which is extremely toxic <laughs> and right. and controversial and not uh, – no chance of being seen in, in, his, in his own country Definitely. as far as he knows. Um, and uh, somewhere along the way, somehow, uh, he's – as encouragement, I guess, as well as recognition of his greatness – he wins the Nobel Prize for mm-hmm. literature for a novella, which right. is uh, nuts, but he does. What year is that? Uh, he receives the prize in 19 – well, he is announced as the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. It's going to be 1973 before he's actually able to leave the Soviet Union uh, to uh, deliver his address in Sweden. Um, essentially what is happening is that uh, in the first circle, or actually at this point it's being called the first circle, the expurgated version of in the first circle. Yeah, I misspoke. Uh, I misspoke. He, by, by 60 – when he's expelled from the writers' union, he has published the first circle, correct? Uh, no. No? Um, what happens is that – That's why he self-censors it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he there's a something there's a term called um, samizdat, yep. which means um, a system whereby books that have not been published in the Soviet Union are um, kind of spread out, dispersed among a variety of trustworthy friends and and friends of friends, uh, who so that in order to read, let's say, a copy of the first circle, uh, one would have to type up a carbon, let's say 10 copies on carbon paper of the novel, uh, distribute those 10 copies to 10 people who in turn would create another 10 copies. And over the years, uh, Sami's dot 
became quite a thorn in the side of the of the Soviet Union. A it's, like a bootleg, th- it's like a bootleg recording of a that's concert. Right. That's right. And the second thing that's taking place is that sort of. uh, copies of Cancer Ward and First Circle um, – get out of the Soviet Union. It's not Solzhenitsyn who was sending them out. He was very much opposed to these works being published abroad before they could be published within the Soviet Union. But at any rate, copies did manage to get out, and indeed a publishing house in Italy and then in the United States uh, were uh, translating and then publishing these Russian novels. And so works like The First Circle... Uh, Cancer Ward were becoming, well, they're both published, let's say, in the West uh, as early as 1968. And so Solzhenitsyn uh, receives the Nobel Prize for Literature, not only on the merits of One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, but uh, his non-published in the Soviet Union (laughs) novels, works published only in the West, uh, Cancer Ward and, and First Circle. And he's afraid – give me the timing on this. He's afraid to leave the country to accept the prize mm-hmm. at first because he's afraid – this is hard to believe for most of us, but he, he's afraid he won't be let back in. He's af- That's right. He's certain. Uh, he learned the experience of Boris Pasternak, the author of Dr. Zhivago, who received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1958. And uh, there are many who feel that – the hell that Pasternak was put through by the Soviet authorities, how he was ripped apart by Pravda and other Soviet news media, uh, eventually led to Pasternak's death. Solzhenitsyn didn't want to to repeat Pasternak's experience, and so um, he knew that were he to leave the Soviet Union – he definitely would not be permitted to return to the Soviet Union. Russian writers have learned over the centuries, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, that um, they can only write, or at least rightly or wrongly, they hold the opinion that they need to write in Russia, in the country of Russia, with Russian people, mm-hmm. not abroad. And the, the irony is that... Um, with Solzhenitsyn's receiving the Nobel Prize for Literature, he now becomes too dangerous for the Soviet authorities to arrest or to execute because he's become basically a martyr in the West. And so the Soviets find themselves in grave, deep um, problems about what to do with Solzhenitsyn. He was too much a thorn in the side of uh, the Soviet authorities, they couldn't manage to send him to an insane asylum, which they had been doing by the thousands, um, or to to execute him or to arrest him. And it's only going to be, of course, um, in 1973, where indeed they expel him from the Soviet Union, something that he strongly resists. And he leaves. he leaves against his will. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is he he initially comes to the Hoover Institution at Stanford, where I work, mm-hmm. uh, and is in. Somebody told me he slept on a couch there for a while. I don't know if that's true, but um, you know he's he doesn't have any money. Obviously, he doesn't have a job. He's just he's a lone. And is he? By the way, he remarries his wife at some point. 
Well, that's another question. Let's let's correct something. Yeah. Um, Soviet Union, Soviet Union, Solzhenitsyn, excuse me, was well on the way to becoming a multi-millionaire by this time. In other words, well, could he get his money out when he was expelled? Could he get oh, access to see, it? He, he, oh, we had royalties in the West, maybe in the West. Yeah, he was not making money in the in the Soviet Union. Um, Writer, well, all kinds of problems with that. Money at that time didn't mean anything in the Soviet Union. One could only really purchase things through connections. Um, the source of social needs money, of course, were the publications in Western publishing houses. But he, anyway, he comes here mm-hmm. and he starts off in California right. and then he ends up in Vermont because right. I assume he liked the climate. It reminded him of home. And there's something incredibly poignant about that. Mm-hmm. And he eventually uh, goes back to Russia after the fall of the Iron Curtain, correct? Uh, yes, a bit misleading. Eventually, it would be 18 years later. Yeah. Um, he lives here in Vermont for, for that 18-year period. Uh, and what he had declared very early on is that he refused to return to his homeland, to his home country, the Soviet Union, unless and or until the Soviet Union would publish all of Solzhenitsyn's writings within uh, within the country. And that looked as though certainly in the 70s and most of the Possible. 80s, as though it would never, ever happen, yeah. of course, wasn't even a question. Uh, but with the uh, arrival of Gorbachev, um, we have in the latter part of the 1980s, um, eventually by 1988, Gorbachev is on is moving in a direction where by uh, roughly 1991, indeed all Solzhenitsyn's works are being um, published within his own homeland, and it's at this point where he says, "I will now come back to the place of my birth and continue to write there." And so I'm 64 years old. I'm going to turn to the. I'm going to now turn to bigger. I'm going to leave his life per se, mm-hmm. and I want to turn to the book and his right. and his his standing in 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 the world. So I, when I was younger, I grew up. Uh, I was born in 1954. The Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 was a very formative political experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very much an anti-communist person as as a youth, as of course were many. Uh, but certainly anti-Soviet. And I was extremely interested in Solzhenitsyn in my 20s. I read I read all the gulag. I read many of his novels. And then I got older and I didn't read much about him. I, I read uh, Ann Applebaum's book uh, called oh, The course. Gulag, which is a wonderful book I also recommend mm-hmm. for people who don't want to get through all three volumes of, of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. But it, I... I and there's one other thing to mention is that in 19 – I think it's 78, he gives a commencement address at Harvard and causes right. quite a stir. We'll put some links up to that, but about that. But he becomes sort of forgotten. The Soviet Union falls. Oh, yes. um, the communism ends. The gulag becomes a historical footnote. There's no – you know, Russia today has many problems, but they don't have anything like the labor camps of the right. 30s and 40s and 50s. And um, – in, in many ways, he becomes almost a, an anachronism, a, a, a chronicler of of something that was important, obviously, an incredible part of the 20th century. In fact, I would call him 
one of the most influential people of the 20th century, not just one of the most influential writers, because mm-hmm. he had such an incredible, uh, as you say, it was incredible. Uh, you were talking about something else, but he was he was a thorn in the side right. uh, of of the regime for decades. And um, but he's out of people aren't so interested in him anymore. They they sort of stopped um, reading him. I feel I'm guessing certainly relative to to the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And and so here we are today in 2018, and and yet all of a sudden I'm interested in him again. I think I think we realized we didn't have the end of history, and then maybe we have things to learn from the totalitarianism of of the 20th century. And I think mm-hmm. there's he's ripe ripe for rebirth. But I I think it's an incredible thing just to think about the fact that he, that this man who was as famous a person as you can possibly imagine. Uh, as a non-American in America when he got here is sort of like not – most people couldn't probably tell you anything about him other than that he must be a Russian. Well, there, there was – there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, during the 60s and 70s and 80s in the Soviet Union, um, Russian people, Soviet readers were considered the most uh, – novel reading people in the world and there's a reason for that there was nothing else to do Uh, one let's say a 24 year old a 35 year old uh, couldn't go into business there was no business Uh, business was the matter of the state and so on and it's only with essentially the collapse of the soviet union in 1991 and a lot of missteps during the 1990s, but between, let's say, the end of the 90s and the present, young people, whether they're 16 or 30 years old, they actually now have an opportunity to create a life for themselves, something that they never had previously. Um, That would be one factor involved here. Uh, another factor is so you're that saying, you're saying they don't read as much as they used to, for starters. Uh, they, yeah, they definitely don't read, and they don't do the kind of reading that they used to do. Um, we Americans, uh, to a certain extent, a lot of people in the West, um, we don't create, we don't um, establish the kind of writing, deeply ethical, philosophical readings, a creative literature that Russian literature in the 19th and 20th centuries have been so known for. Uh, While Pasternak's Dr. Zhivago was not permitted to um, be published in the Soviet Union, um, everyone virtually had read that novel, as well or along with many, many other um, officially unpublished Russian writers. Uh, The Russian novel, Russian writing, is something very, very different than what it is in the West and certainly very different than uh, what we perceive to be, let's say, fiction or literature here in the United States. Um, I would say... I would say that um, Solzhenitsyn's, the nature of Solzhenitsyn's writings have become for, what, 25 and 35-year-old Russian people too ethical, too moral, uh, too deep. Too Uh, philosophical, yeah. Too philosophical. They're much more interested in um, getting the kinds or beginning the kinds of careers that are going to make them money. Russian people were very, very unprepared 
for this new world of capitalism, which was opened up to them in, in 1991 and throughout the 1990s. While the Russians never really came to practice capitalism as we understand it in the West, it did nonetheless um, enable them to es essentially establish a real different kind of life for themselves, life different from what they had in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I'm not sure and, that I'm not sure American readers are that different in terms of wanting to grapple with ethical and philosophical big picture questions. Well, I, I think I think without a doubt, uh, particularly let's say young and whatever that means in the United States today, younger readers today um, are not into what we would call deep literature anymore. Either they want to read. Uh, the kinds of things, of course, that are most popular with young readers. But uh, the same thing is definitely going on in, in, the, uh, in Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so we have a, a, an irony here. While in 2006, Time magazine proclaims Solzhenitsyn the most important writer of the 20th century, while um, Russian citizens throughout or to the end of the 20th century and now to the first fifth of the 21st century, in their minds, Solzhenitsyn was the single most important individual uh, leading to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, whether or not this is accurate, one can debate, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but I would certainly say that he was an important factor. And the irony is, finally, is that it's Putin who, in 2009, dictates rules that all Soviet high school students have to read Solzhenitsyn in their schools. Wow. So in the 70s and for that matter, yeah, in the late 60s and the 70s and the 80s, when I would be strip searched, when I would go into the Soviet Union, um, people, that is the authorities looking either for a copy of the Bible or of Playboy or of anything written by Solzhenitsyn, by 2009 and to the present day, by the way, um, people have, that is, uh, Soviet high school students have to read Solzhenitsyn. So there's considerable irony there. So I just want to make a couple of reactions to that. I, I recently read for the first time uh, The Brothers Karamazov. Oh, yes. And I uh, read it about uh, maybe a month or two before I read uh, In the First Circle, and I was struck by their similarities in the, in the sense that both books – uh, essentially grapple Ooh, uh, yes. with the biggest philosophical questions that there are. Why, yes. why there's suffering? What is the good life? Mm -hmm. what, what, what should a person do faced with ethical dilemmas? That's right. Uh, and I, I would just encourage, besides encouraging readers to read The Brothers Karamazov, a mere 900-page book to add to your reading list, <laughs> uh, I would also just mention that there's, uh, I just also happened to read David Foster Wallace's essay reviewing a biography of Dostoevsky by Frank. I think it's oh, Frank. Yes. And mm -hmm. David Foster Wallace says, uh, you know, Americans can't write books like this, like Dostoevsky's. And if they do, they have to do it in, in sort of cutesy ways with irony. And, mm -hmm. and he, he makes this point in a very cutesy and ironic way. It's a tremendous essay. It's found in his collection called Consider the Lobster, which I, which I recommend. Mm -hmm. um, Question, why did it take so long to get the book translated? The book, he says, restored in 1968. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that means 
the Russian book. Was it available in the first circle in Russian in 1968 other than in Samistad? It was not published in that version? No, was it was it? not published. Um, he, that is Solzhenitsyn, um, restored in the first circle, um, that is the original novel that he had written. Added he the chapters it. back, changed oh, the plot. That's right. He added the chapters back, changed the plot somewhat. Um, made some additions as well um, from the, the, the expurgated version, which is called, of course, The First Circle. The English language translation of In the First Circle only becomes available in 2009. Right. Um, quite a gap. In, quite a gap. In fact, um, Solzhenitsyn's autobiography uh, a book which in English translation is called, um, oops, what do we call it? The Calf. Um, the Calf butted, <laughs> butted Up Against the Tree. There's a more better translation of that. That's the Russian kind of translation. But his um, follow-up to uh, The Oak and the Calf, that's the name of it in English translation. The, tra the follow-up to Oak and the Calf uh, is going to be translated now, into, or has been translated and will appear only in November mm. of 2018. So these books take a long time um, to be translated. A lot of it has to do, is the reading public going to indeed be interested? Right. In We're showing them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and so there's a lot to that. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I guess a lot were, of people could, could have said, well, you got the first circle. What do you need this other one for? <laughs> that's true. And, and and you could argue that's just, a, you know, the first circle is a great book. There, there's no doubt about it. So it's uh, you, you could make the case. Um, what do you think, of, as someone who speaks Russian, what do you think of the translation? The English language translation? Yeah. Uh, this translation, I think, is is the best um, that I have seen. Um, this is another reason, by the way, for why it took so long for a lot of these things to be translated. Solzhenitsyn ended up being very dissatisfied with some of the English language translations that he was getting from his novels. And I would say over the course of the late 70s, all of the 80s, into the 90s and so on, uh, there was quite a, a, a difficulty in basically um, finding... Uh, translators, whether it be British or American, um, who could handle, essentially, the difficulties of translating Solzhenitsyn. Um, schools of translation, of course, uh, are as many as there are translators, <laughs> but um, Solzhenitsyn writes in a Russian language which is extremely challenging to read, even for Russians. Um, let's say if we look at One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, a lot of In the First Circle, a lot of Cancer Ward, definitely the Gulag, etc., etc. Solzhenitsyn often will intersperse um, Ukrainianisms, Belarusianisms, uh, prison camp jargon and speech. Uh, he likes to write in and with a number of old Russian proverbs. Solzhenitsyn, in his uh, writing in Russian, had a definite goal. He wanted to um, leave the boring, stilted, ugly language of the Soviet 
Russian period of, let's say, the first um, 60 or 70 years of the 20th century. And he wanted to return uh, the beauty to the Russian language and, and particularly the richness of the Russian idiom. And in doing so, um, for Russians today and in the latter half of the 20th century, he was difficult to read. Um, he was very much against, for example, using foreign words or, or words, let's say, American or Englishisms uh, in Russian. And he would, if a word didn't exist in the Russian language, he would create a word on the basis of Russian etymology. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to, um, well, for example, I would say Gogol and Dostoevsky are two of the most difficult writers of the 19th century to translate into English, I would say Solzhenitsyn is probably the most difficult 20th century author to do so. So, we're running out of time here. I think what, what I'll do now is give my reaction to listeners about how you might go about reading the book, give some sure. advice, and sure. then uh, let Kevin react to that, and uh, and we'll we'll wrap up this introduction, which has really been fantastic for me oh, to, to hear um, I made the mistake, or for whatever reason, I gave my copy. I bought the book and I gave it away to my. Uh, I gave it, to, I think, to my uh, middle son, my youngest son, to read. So mm -hmm. I read it in uh, on the Kindle, and mm -hmm. it's very hard to read on the Kindle, folks. I'm not saying you can't do it; you could, and there's some advantages to doing it on the Kindle. But let me start with the general issue here, which is. It's not a hard book to read at all. It, the prose for an American reading it in translation is delightful. Right. It, it reads easily. It moves quickly. The characters are incredibly vivid. The scenes that we see them behaving in are, uh, as I said, heartbreaking, amusing, tragic, mm -hmm. delightful, funny. So it, it's not a hard book to read. It's just a hard book to grasp. And the reason mm -hmm. is very simple. There's about 50 characters in the book, <laughs> and there's the standard Russian problem, which is they have multiple names. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, in the paperback version, a list of the characters up front, which I, which is – doesn't someone might give away a little too much of the plot, but you, you use that. I, you can keep your finger there uh, mm -hmm. if you need to. And, of course, on the Kindle, you can look back. You can search and find the first time. The person's mentioned, if you need to, you can find – you should bookmark. If you're reading on the Kindle, bookmark the list of characters so you can flip back to it relatively quickly. Right. But that's not the problem. It's not that they have multiple names. It's a little bit of a problem, but you could – eventually that, that works out okay. The real problem is, is that it's hard to know um, – so, let me say it differently – a lot of the characters get lots of airtime. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. not like there's an insignificant character. You go, oh, well, they just that person just shows up. That person might show up and have a pretty important chapter about them, and they don't show up again, or mm -hmm. they only show up again at the end. So don't mm -hmm. um, don't be discouraged by that. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, I would take notes in the margin of the book, the physical book, besides using the glossary of characters, the list of characters in the beginning, keeping your finger there. You might wonder when a character shows up, make a little jarred little note down for yourself about their activities or what they do or who they are, uh, or keep your own list of characters. It'll help you keep them straight. Having said that, I didn't bother keeping them straight. I just kind of kept reading because it's, it's, it's too hard. Part of it is, by the way, that for an American, the Russian names, even if they only had one name, it's hard because they're not so 
America, they're not so familiar to the American ear. And you start thinking, is this that guy who does the sweeping yeah. or is this the guy who works as an engineer or is this that guy who works as a general? So mm-hmm. that's hard for me. It might not be hard for you out there, listeners, but for me, that was hard. And I just, I just kept reading. The main characters uh, do come back over and over again, and um, it'll be okay. So th- my, my advice is don't get discouraged when you struggle to remember who's who. Keep reading to reduce the the trauma of that and the anxiety and the occasional oh was like oh yeah that's the guy take some notes and and do refer to the to the list yeah, but again be prepared that it's a sprawling book mm-hmm. um, and there is a plot but it's you know I, I hate to say this this is going to be somewhat um, sacrilegious perhaps but you could call it a few days in the life of even Denisovich. It, it, it captures what life is like in the Shiroshka in, in an incredible way. And along the way, of course, things happen to these folks, and they get swept along by events and currents. And, and it all does have a, a denouement at the end that's very powerful, but uh, mm-hmm. it's not a normal novel. So be prepared for that. Go into it with an open mind. Watch what emerges from the lives of these people interacting with each other. They're all interacting, and it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, I would call it a, a quilt of um, of their of their interactions that that is just uh, it's just magnificent. So mm-hmm. I, I encourage everyone listening to read the book, read it in print if you can't read it in the Kindle. Uh, if you can't listen as we discuss it uh, in the next episode and um, uh, enjoy. And Kevin, I'll let you uh, comment, add anything you want to that, and uh, we'll end. Sure. Your your description of, of the cast of characters that I think appears in the in, uh, at the beginning of the novel on about page, Roman numeral page 17 or so, I might suggest writing in the margin, or you could even um, photocopy these three or four pages of the mm-hmm. cast of characters. Oh, yeah. Great Write idea. down page numbers where you're in, introduced to a particular character. I wouldn't say each and every character because there are too many, but you're going to see, and this is, uh, is this goes to the second point of what you're describing. Um, what Another thing that makes Dostoevsky so hard, challenging to translate is the structure of his novels. And Dostoevsky writes, or Solzhenitsyn or both? Did I say, you said, uh, actually, you both said Dostoevsky. Them. Yeah, we, we mostly associate – this is where Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn are so similar. Uh, Dostoevsky is famous for what is called the polyphonic structure of his novels. That is, rather than having, as we're used to in the West, one central main character who kind of stands at, as the centerpiece of everything that happens in the novel, the polyphonic structure of a Dostoevsky or a Solzhenitsyn um, is that – uh, there's not a main central character. There's a cast, and by cast, yep. I would say perhaps five to yep. eight central characters, as well as perhaps three to four central major themes. Yep. And so uh, everything, it's kind of a fugue of, of um, characters, a fugue of plot action, um, and, and again, it's the, this polyphonic structure over 741 pages. Uh, it, it holds together masterfully. I would say that's the main fault of the first circle, uh, deleting those nine chapters 
from the original version that Solzhenitsyn had completed, um, the first circle didn't hold together nearly as well or as successfully as in the first circle does. I would say those would be my main my main um, comments. Um, I suppose I do have one final one. Uh, I'm afraid that as as your readers or listeners, I guess, are listening to your and my comments, or at least some of your and my comments, they might say, oh my gosh, this sounds difficult to read. Uh, one thing I would add, I don't know of any work that is more rewarding to read yeah, no, I, than this one. No, uh, I, this this yeah. is a masterpiece uh, akin to Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Pasternak, Bulgakov. This is some of the best writing uh, of Russian literature, period. And you're going readers, yeah, readers or your listeners are going to be so amazingly rewarded when they complete this novel. Not because they've made it through 741 pages, but because some awfully deep and complex characters and themes and plot action so interact with each other over the course of this novel that. As you're reading the final hundred or so pages, you think, "My God, I wish this were twice as long." Yep. I don't want I hate it to it. end. I hated to leave them when when yeah. it ended. I, I felt bereft, and that's really the sign of a great, great Absolutely. work of art and a great novel. Yes. I, I just want to emphasize the point you made earlier, because I think it's extremely important. Uh, and I wish I'd done this. It's better advice than I gave. When you when a character shows up, go back to the glossary. Print it out is a great idea. If you don't print it out, just go back with your finger and write that page number down yeah, next yeah. to the character. Because when they show up later and you think, who was – I've met this yeah. person before, <laughs> you can find it. And you can do that on the Kindle by searching. The problem with the Kindles, there's so many of them, so many mentions. You're not always sure which one to go back to. So oh, sure. take – and you're not – it just – it's not as easy to see it quickly. So I, I recommend that. The second point I want to emphasize and, and just reinforce is that – it's not a hard book to read. It, it, it's not like reading Ulysses by James Joyce. The, the prose wow. is fabulous. It's, it's mm-hmm. a breeze. Uh, when you pick it up and read the first five pages, you'll say, I've got to find out more. But as you go on, you're, you may find it challenging because uh, it does have that polyphonic nature, yeah. and that's a much better uh, metaphor than the quilt I used. It's, it really is different melodies are weaving in and out. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it is a fugue. My guest today has been Kevin McKenna. We're talking about In the First Circle by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Kevin, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, you're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.